Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys interview. Conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture with authors and researchers from across the ideological spectrum. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is E. Glenn Weil, a principal researcher at Microsoft Research in New York City. He has a PhD in economics from Princeton University and is a visiting senior research scholar at Yale University. Today, we'll be talking about his recent book with Eric Posner, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. You know, I read a lot of books on public policy in, in my work, and, and this is without a doubt the, both the most radical and you know, the most intriguing set of proposals I've seen in quite a while. Uh, there aren't very many books I read that make me really kind of fundamentally reconsider what I thought I knew. Uh, well, Radical Markets not only did this, but it did this in a number of ways. It, it's truly an exceptional book, and I really encourage everyone with any sort of interest in public policy to pick up a copy. And so I'm really happy to have one of the authors here with me today. Uh, Dr. Weil, thanks, thanks for coming here. Welcome to the show. My pleasure to be talking to you, Michael. So the book is called Radical Markets, and the vision that you and Eric Posner lay out is absolutely radical and very broad. And I thought that before we get into the specific proposals you, you talk about, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what, what sort of prompted you to write such, a, well, a very bold and an unconventional book. Well, for many years, we've been working on the policy proposals that fed into this book, but really what led us to write the book itself and to embark on this project was fundamentally the feeling that the liberal order, the world we all grew up in, is being shaken. Populists are rising all around the world, and they're rising in response to a series of very real concerns, rising inequality stagnating growth in many wealthy countries, but we don't think they really have answers to those problems. We think they want to retreat to discredited, you know, features of the 1950s, whether that's, you know, closeness to technology and trade, or whether that's uh, state socialism of various kinds. And we think that to avoid the descent into something like the 1930s, you know, the sort of fascism and so forth of that period, we need a clear, strong vision that can directly address the problems our societies are facing. And we thought we had the elements for that and therefore had a social responsibility to bring them forward and um, put that vision out there. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that, you know, a lot of a lot of books on policy are sort of uh, somewhat ideological, of either conservative or liberal. But but you really take issue with sort of both parties' conventional solutions, which is what I think makes this such an interesting book. Yeah, I mean, we are in, in some sense trying to invent our own ideology yeah. here. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, like I said, there are, there are a variety of proposals, and I just sort of wanted to take them as well as you presented them 
And your first one is for, and maybe this, uh, you'll correct me if this is too bold, but sort of really upending our current understanding of private property. Um, you know, you talk about this in a chapter that's called Property is Monopoly, which is, is a pretty uh, interesting claim. And so I thought that'd be a great place to start with essentially what is your critique of private property, which now, as you've discussed in the book, isn't, isn't really exactly original with you, but dates back to a guy named Henry George, who was a, a political economist in the late 19th century. So uh, what's wrong with private property as we currently know it and understand it? Well, I think everybody knows that there's a problem with monopolies. Everyone has a sense that if there's only one person who has control over an asset or, you know, an industry or something like this, that they can charge extremely high prices, they can exploit people, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, because every piece of this earth, every object is in some way unique, uh, all private property, all exclusive control over things like land or intellectual property convey a form of monopoly on their uh, owner. And that monopoly stops those assets from being used in the most efficient way. If some new entrepreneur comes along and wants to take over the building from which I'm calling you, they've got a great startup idea that requires that and maybe some of the buildings around it, there would be a long and drawn-out process of negotiation between the current possessor of that building and the entrepreneur who's got something better to do with it, rather than there being sort of a competitive market process for allocating that. There would be a very sort of uh, bargaining, negotiation, blah, blah, blah. And um, private property inherently creates that because it gives one individual an absolute veto power over, or one corporation an absolute veto power over how an asset can be used rather than allowing a market process to allocate it. And I think one of the really interesting examples that I've heard you use about this is when you talk about big projects like the the Hyperloop project or something like that, just the the process of trying to gather together all those parcels of land or even trying to know how much they'll cost is is incredibly difficult and time-consuming. But under the sort of uh, proposed system you propose, it would make it so much easier. Well, I think another great example is, you know, right now our listeners are probably not listening to us over the air on the radio. They're probably listening to us uh, via the Internet, which probably they're getting via Wi-Fi or 5G or something like that. And those new uses of the radio spectrum have for years been blocked by the people who currently own the right to broadcast uh, over the air or radio uh, or television and things like this. And those uh, older uses persist. And the newer uses are blocked because of the perpetual licenses that those over-the-air broadcasters have been given. And uh, there's, it's very difficult to reassemble those licenses and repackage them in a way that allows uh, for efficient Wi-Fi and 5G services. Right. So I'm hoping you could sort of explain your uh, solution 
to this, I, I think of it sort of as an everything for sale all the time type of approach, which sounds, I, I'm sure listeners would say, how could that possibly even work? But you sketch that out in a fair amount of detail in the book. Can you kind of give us a, a capsule explanation of how that would work? Yeah, so the basic idea is that everyone would choose a price, uh, corporations, wealthy individuals, for the major pieces of private property that they own, and they would pay a 7% tax on that self-assessed price. So 7% is kind of an arbitrary number. It would differ across different types of assets and whatever, but on average, it would be about 7%. And then they'd have to stand ready to sell that asset at that price. So for example, consider somebody who owns a private company. You know, private companies right now, they don't pay very many taxes because it's really hard to know what the value of them is. You know, there's no real capital gains there they'd have to assess a value of all the assets held by that private company and stand ready to sell those assets to any comer at that self-assessed price while paying a tax on that. So on the one hand, they wouldn't want to set that price too high because it would increase their tax. On the other hand, they don't want to allow someone to take it from them from less, for less than it's worth to them. And if you set the tax rate equal to the typical rate at which those assets turn over in the economy, the rate at which people sell them to other people, um, you can show that people have an incentive to put the price at exactly how much would make them just happy to sell that at, at that price. Right. Now, I mean, when I, it took me a, a few, a little while to kind of wrap my head around this idea, but one of the things that, that occurred to me after, wow, this would be a brilliant way to do big sort of infrastructure projects, uh, much more efficient, was well, what about the effects on people of different income levels? Because I was wondering if this might be sort of particularly unfair to people who had lower incomes. Because let's say, you know, you're, you're wealthy and maybe you decide that the, the old family homestead is worth protecting. And so you put a super high price on it and you say, well, I'm willing to pay that tax, that extra tax. But if you're in a less, you know, uh, enviable financial situation, you don't have the ability to do that. And in fact, I was thinking you might even feel a pressure to make the price of your home uh, lower than it would be otherwise and, and maybe risk having it bought out from under you just to keep that tax down. Uh, is, I'm sure you've heard kind of arguments like that before. So uh, how, do you, uh, how do you respond to that? Is that a well, fair it's, critique? It's, it's actually quite the opposite. Okay. The reason is that Private wealth is overwhelmingly held by an incredibly tiny set of people. The median household in the United States has about $80,000 of net wealth. The average household in the United States has about a million dollars of net wealth. So that means that there's a million dollars of wealth out there for every man, woman, and child, uh, or, you know, for every group of four men, women, and children. Right. Uh, and um, on the other hand, a typical household of four has only 80,000 net dollars. So what that means is if you impose this tax, and as we suggest, use about half that revenue to pay a social dividend to every family of approximately $24,000. That family, to maintain their assets at current market prices, would only have to pay a tax of about $1,500 every year, while they'd be receiving a $24,000 social dividend. If they overvalued their assets by a factor of 10, so that there would be almost no chance of anyone taking it from them, they would still on net benefit by about $10,000 from this proposal. So the truth is, the only people who are going to be net losers of this proposal 
are people who are members of what I would call the capitalist class, people with above that average of $1 million of net assets for a family of uh, four, which is a very tiny fraction of the population. It's less than 1%. And, and I think that's a really important part of the whole system. The key to it is that the money that's generated from this tax would, would in a sense, be... Uh, if we could use the word redistributed in a way, and that would also, it seems to me, help to deal with some of the issues of, of income inequality that we're, we're struggling with currently. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even really like the term redistribution because I think the current system is really redistributing it. The, the, the truth is that the, the system is based on the principle that each of us has the ability to make use of assets. And the system of private property towards the opportunity to do that in the hands of very few. This system, by both opening up access through making everything be priced and by opening up the ability to access things by giving everyone an equal stake, uh, proportions the um, value within the system to the ability to make use of things in a way that our current system, affording things in the hands of a lucky few, right. does not. Right. And, and just to be clear, this isn't the sort of thing where, I mean, it isn't the sort of thing where somebody would buy your house out from under you and you'd have to be gone in a, in a day or a week. I mean, this is, there would be, there would be uh, provisions built into this system so that you know, to deal with the, these, sort of, uh, these sort of issues and so forth, correct? Just, just as with foreclosure or with evictions at present, which, by the way, Enormous numbers of people face today. The typical, you know, position of a household in the United States is not owning your house outright. Very few people do. Most people, you know, who are uh, uh, ordinary people in this country, they face eviction often. And if not eviction, they're often auto underwater in their house. You know, just one uh, lost paycheck away from from losing that house. So, security and stability under present system accrue to wealth. Under this system, yes, you can pay for more stability. You can pay to make sure that you know no one will take your house. But people would have a far more equal ability to do that, and we would tax the hoarding of stability by the wealthy to make stability available to everyone. Right, and, and it also occurs to me that this would make well anyone who's bought a house knows what a stressful thing it is, especially if you're trying to sell a house at the same time. But this would make the whole process so much easier because you would essentially, in this system, be able to just pull up a map and look at the value of a house you were interested in buying and, and put in an not put in an offer, but essentially buy it at that price. And while that seems pretty, pretty, uh, like a pretty good idea to anyone, I think, who's gone through that negotiation process. Well, I, you know, I actually just went through that and it would make it easier along a couple of other dimensions as well. One is that, you know, one problem in deciding whether a house is a good, you know, in, you know, choice or not is what are my alternatives? You know, what are the comparable houses that, uh, you know, I should think about when valuing this house? And at present, you know, I just bought an apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, which has quite a few people. There's 60,000 people living in Hoboken, New Jersey. But, you know, they could only find a couple of apartments that had sold in the last few years that were comparable to mine. In this system, every apartment in the whole city would be transparent, and I could compare it against those. And not just that, but, um, you know, right now, to buy a home, almost everyone has to take on a huge amount of debt. Under this system, because of the taxes, the value of houses would fall by about two-thirds, because you would be taking into account the taxes that you have to pay. 
So that would mean that what, what currently is basically a down payment would suffice as the entire purchase price of the home. Everything else would be paid as these tax payments afterwards. So that would dramatically open up the chance for people who don't have many assets to afford a home without taking on debt. Um, you know, you also wouldn't have to spend so much time under the system worrying about what somebody else is likely to value this house of the future. You know, I, I considered buying a house that was on a street where um, there was a homeless shelter, and I was perfectly fine with that, but I was very worried about how people in the future would value that and whether I would get locked into my house given the debt that we had to take off. And you wouldn't have to worry about that in the system, both because the debt wouldn't exist, but also because, you know, the taxes that you would pay would offset a lot of the value that other people placed on that place. And so it wouldn't even necessarily on net be a good thing for you to be buying a place that, you know, other people value much more. So for all of these reasons, it would just make the whole process much easier. Yeah, it, it sure does seem like a lot better idea. But th there's one other issue that uh, that occurred to me, and it sort of has yeah. to do with a, a lot of ideas that rely on sort of the rationality uh, of the general public. I mean, this is sort of an issue I have with a lot of libertarians. Is they, you know, they seem to think that everyone is as rational and as intelligent as they are. And sometimes I hear their plans, and I think, well, yeah, that would work great. If everyone was as rational and intelligent as you are, but what we know about people is they aren't uh, in large part. And so, you know, obviously for this to work, people would need to be able to correctly price uh, their houses and potentially other things as well, depending on how far you wanted to take this. Would this be a significant issue in your view? Well, first of all, people don't need under the system to correctly value things. Everyone could overvalue their things by two times or three times, and then they would have stability. And as I said, for almost everyone in the population, except for the very wealthy, who presumably we don't have to worry quite as much about you know, their ability to value these things, um, for everyone but the very wealthy, this would still on net be a huge benefit to them. Even if you overvalued things by three times, you'd still be getting $20,000 special dividend on net. So, um, you know, on the other hand, to the extent people are rational, to the extent that they do have abilities to value things, they could afford to reduce that and, and get a little bit of extra income from that, the same way that, you know, people get extra income from offering people rides, uh, you know, in, in the sharing economy right now or renting out their house. You know, it, it's sort of like saying, well, if Airbnb exists, everyone needs to know exactly how to price their apartment. Well, not really. Some people just choose not to get that extra income, right? So, so really what this system does is not put this huge burden on people's rationality and so forth. What it truly does is um, give everybody the opportunity to earn extra income by hoarding less, but it also gives them the security by the social dividend that if they want to not worry about that, that they can. What it really does is, is, is give much greater both opportunity to everyone and uh, actually the basis for security. Now, I, I thought that this is just a great idea. I would love to see this implemented in some way. Uh, but obviously, this is a, a huge change, not the sort of thing that we, anyone, anyone would expect to happen overnight. One of the things I like is that for all the proposals you sketch out in the book, you, you acknowledge this. But not only that, but you talk about ways that this could perhaps be brought into being in smaller ways, test cases, that sort of thing, to sort of to sort of run through and, and see what the issues might be and that sort of thing. So 
taking this idea of this kind of auction economy idea, if you will, how what might be some less radical ways to implement that? Well, one thing I've been really overwhelmed with in the last few months is how much interest there has been in experimenting with these ideas. Several billion dollars of capital have already gone into startups and other uh, projects that are trying to test these types of ideas on everything from um, you know, charter cities, new cities that, that would start under these principles, uh, online environments where people are using these things, domain names in cryptocurrencies, um, the pixels on a million-dollar homepage where everyone owns one pixel and they sort of collaboratively make a picture together. Um, on uh, public assets, we've been talking to governments like the FCC about doing this for Spectrum, like we talked about earlier, to the British government about, uh, you know, oil drilling uh, or, or using it for landing spots in an airport. So there's just a whole range of cases uh, where we think this can be extremely valuable without uh, having to scale it up so broadly that we lose control of it and it could be destructive. Yeah, I really like the idea of, uh, which I know you've mentioned before, about uh, applying this to domain names, because I think like a lot of people, when I was looking for a domain name, in fact, for this for this very podcast, uh, a lot of my first choices were, were, were taken, but they weren't actually being used, and the amount of money that they wanted for them was just essentially ridiculous. And, and if I understand correctly, under this system, those people who paid that amount of money, they'd have to pay that yearly tax, and that would, that would make that a lot less attractive for them, and they wouldn't, uh, the price would be a lot lower. So, Yeah, so those are called cyber squatters, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. one of many forms of trolling that the private property system allows, and that this system would either disallow or force them to pay a lot for, and so they probably wouldn't want to do it. Right. After you you talk about this auction system for, well, I mean, we, we talked a lot about houses, but it applies obviously to so much more. The next big issue you, you look at is, is voting. Uh, specifically, one person, one vote, which is, of course, how we do it here. And, and, and you argue that there is actually a pretty big problem with one person, one vote. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that is? Well, I think everybody intuitively gets this. I mean, no one really thinks that, for example, the right to bear arms or the right to, um, you know, marry a person who you choose or the right to uh, have reasonable uh, schools if you're an African-American should be subjected to a majority vote. That would obviously lead to all sorts of repression of minorities by majorities. So we, you know, we put the Supreme Court in charge of deciding issues like that. But, um, but you know, the Supreme Court is a bunch of old, often out of touch people uh, from a previous generation with very little democratic accountability. So that doesn't seem like a particularly good solution either. We don't want the majority rule. And we also don't just want bureaucrats to rule or party leaders to rule or judges to rule. So how can we fix that? How can we empower minorities to protect themselves on the issues most important to them? And in exchange, have those minorities say, look, when I'm in the majority on another issue and you're in the minority and it's really important to you, I'll, you know, give you what you need. And, and, we'll, and we'll make a trade, an agreement like that as a society. We don't have a system for doing that. One person, one vote doesn't do it. 
how do we solve that? And your solution is something you call quadratic voting. It's a really fascinating thing. And I'd probably half butcher it if I tried to explain it. So could you give us the, the brief explanation as to how it, how it will work, how it does work, in fact? The idea is that every citizen receives a equal budget of what we call voice credit, which represents a voice that they're allowed to have in social decisions. So rather than having to spend one credit on every issue or every election or every candidate, they um, get to allocate those voice credits as they see fit among different issues and candidates in elections. And there's a special rule, though, which is that um, you can't just put all of your votes on one issue and get all of that influence. If you put 100 votes onto one issue, you only get 10 votes on that issue. Whereas if you put one vote on an issue, you get one, one cho- uh, point point on one issue, you get one vote. So it becomes increasingly expensive to have influence on a particular issue as you have more of it. That's according to the quadratic rule. So the number of votes squared is the number of voice credits you have to pay to have that amount of influence. And and why did you settle on that, that quadratic rule for that? So at a broad level, the reason is you, on the one hand, want to allow people to express how important things are to them. On the other hand, you want them not just to pour everything onto the one issue that matters most to them. You want them to have to prove that that last vote is really worth it to them. That if they're getting five votes, that they're paying five times as much for that last vote as someone who's just getting one vote because it's five times as important to them as someone who's just having that one vote, right? And so that's the principle behind it, is that the amount that you're paying for that last vote is in proportion to how many votes you're getting, and therefore in proportion to how much you care about the issue. And that's precisely uh, what is uh, what happens with the quadratic rule and with no other rule. Right. And the great thing about it to me also is that it really gets into, it allows people to express that intensity and importance in a way that we just, there's no, no way we can with one person, one vote. Um, You know, but of course the one objection that I'm sure would immediately occur to a lot of folks is that, you know, it's hard enough for people to manage, just pick one candidate, one person, one vote. And this idea of having a certain number of vote credits and trying to figure out what they're worth and apportioning them out among a bunch of issues and or candidates, uh, wouldn't that possibly just drive a bunch of people away from the process, just throwing up their hands saying, I don't know? Well, we've actually experimented with this. And uh, we've, we've uh, run a survey with 5,000, 6,000 people, including many people who have no high school education, and so uh, you wouldn't expect them to be particularly comfortable with mathematics. And what we found is that actually people are much more engaged with this than they are with a standard process. Because the standard process forces them to vote on everything, regardless of whether they know anything about it. That's what is expected of them. Under this process, on the other hand, you get a way in on the things that are most important to you in proportion to how important they are to you. And that gives people, while it's in some ways challenging, a lot more ability to express themselves and a lot more freedom. You know, I think in general, the problem with our current system is, well, we think we live in a free society. We, we don't give people as much freedom as we have the ability to give them to express what's most important to them. And I think if you trust people with that responsibility, with that freedom, 
But on the other hand, don't force them to do things that don't matter to them and that they really view as a waste of their time. People will take advantage of that to, um, you know, exercise their responsibility as citizens. The current system is much more condescending. It assumes that I'm interested in every issue and that I have to, you know, express myself on every issue rather than allowing me to focus on what's most important to me. And and there's actually uh, uh, this is actually working in the real world in in limited settings, correct? I mean, where there's a, a, a an app and a company, and there are companies that are using this to try to to gauge public opinion and other things like that, right? Uh, yeah, so we're we're using it for a variety of public opinion applications, but we're also using it for a variety of other types of applications, or not we really, but, but the community. Uh, there's a huge amount that's going on in the blockchain space that, where this is being used uh, in, within uh, the blockchain world to do all sorts of um, validation of transactions that occur in cryptocurrencies. It's being used to elect um, people to actually manage uh, those environments. It's being used to uh, rank different things in sort of social media environments or to do up-down votes. It's, I mean, it's really being used all over the place. I think more than any of the ideas, this is the one that's really just uh, mushrooming uh, everywhere. Now, after you talk about voting, you look at immigration policy, which is obviously a, a huge issue these days. And it seems like everyone is unhappy with our immigration policy for for different reasons. What do you think are sort of the what do you identify as the main flaws in immigration policy as it's set up today? Well, as I see it, the two biggest problems with immigration are um, very linked to one another. Uh, even though people on different sides of the spectrum right now talk about them. On the one hand, immigrate the benefits of immigration do not really accrue to the working class of wealthy countries. And that makes them very resistant and hostile to those. On the other hand, um, migration is actually, despite all the complaints we hear about it, very small. Um, you know, a very, very small fraction of people in wealthy countries are immigrants. There's many countries where 50, 60, 70, or even, you know, huge parts of the population are actually migrants. So there's actually a huge amount to be gained by allowing much more migration, but those gains under our current system don't accrue to the broad public. They accrue to um, the migrants themselves or to the wealthy people that hire them. And uh, that's what we try to address with this solution. We try to come up with a system of migration that on the one hand would channel the benefits to ordinary working class people in wealthy countries, and at the same time, uh, by doing that, they would build political support for having much higher levels of migration. Right. And the, the proposal you make is actually related to a certain extent to a, a part of our, our immigration policy already, the, uh, the J-1 au pair immigration visa program. It's just sort of a major, huge expansion of it. So maybe you can explain a little bit about that, that program and how you kind of build on that idea and really dramatically expand it. Well, so it's not just the J-1 program, but there's also a program where farm, so if you own a farm, you can yourself sponsor a, a worker who will come and help you uh, with 
seasonal harvesting or if you have okay. a greenhouse with some year, year-round temporary work. And in all these contexts, the host, whether it's the family that's hiring the au pair or whether it's the um, you know, farmer who's hiring someone to work for them, benefits directly from sponsoring that migrant, right? That, that farm owner, that family is going to uh, get at a uh, very reasonable cost, much more reasonable than what it would cost have someone living with you who is, you know, an American citizen, um, a, a worker helping them out. So they're effectively earning something off of that relative to, you know, what they would be able to achieve uh, if, if that wasn't available. But on the other hand, the migrant is getting the opportunity to earn far more than they could in their uh, home country. I don't think most Americans know it, but, you know, many people in this world live on a dollar a day um, or two dollars a day. And so the opportunity to come and earn $7,000, $8,000 a year in the United States, this is an enormous change in their life prospects. It can completely transform the lives of people in the countries that they come from uh, with remittances that they send back. And under this system, uh, that opportunity wouldn't just be available to families who need no care or farm, you know, farm owners. Uh, or the you know wealthy corporations that sponsor the H-1B visa, we would make every American uh, able to have the right to sponsor a migrant to come and work in the United States. Um, you know they would live somewhere in the general vicinity of the sponsor, and the sponsor would take responsibility to make sure they didn't end up on welfare or committing crimes and things like this. And um, you know they would have interactions with that sponsor, and in exchange the sponsor would negotiate with the migrant for either some share of the benefits the migrant derives or maybe some constant amount, maybe five or $6,000 to sponsor you for a year. And um, so the sponsor would benefit very directly. They would interact with the migrant and the migrants would have much more opportunity to come and much more, many more people who could potentially sponsor them because every American would have the right to do it. And, and so presumably there would have to be some sort of system in place to match up sponsors with immigrants and some sort of screening and, 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 and that sort of also rules in place to make sure that there weren't abuses of this system. People. Yeah. So, okay. Now and all that happens with the au pair system at present. Uh, that's, that's a hugely important part of the au pair system at present. And, um, you know, that would be an important aspect of this program as well, because, uh, you know, right now, most of the people who come do low skill work in the United States are from Latin American countries, just because they're physically close to us. But, you know, obviously there are some differences in culture between Latin America and the United States. And there's many places in the world where there are people who might potentially be a better cultural match for at least particular families, uh, places where there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Protestants in Africa and uh, people who speak English, you know, in India, et cetera, et cetera. And if you had a legal system where people could come and do this, it might be that a lot of those demands would be filled by people who could potentially be a better uh, cultural match, have an easier time adapting to living in the United States. Yeah. And now I think what some people might say is, well, you know, having individual people do this, that just seems really sort of clunky and and people aren't going to really know and be able to handle all this so why don't we just set this up a system like this where businesses can directly sponsor these people wouldn't that just be so much more efficient and effective than trying to work it through individual americans 
Well, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with businesses emerging to help individual Americans match in the right way. And that, that's what the market system is. But I fundamentally uh, find condescending and authoritarian, honestly, the notion that individual Americans won't find a way to exercise their rights and freedoms. You know, we the, the Second Amendment uh, gives individuals a right to uh, bear arms. That doesn't mean there aren't companies that manufacture weapons or that help train people or whatever, but ultimately the right rests with the individual. I don't think we should have a Second Amendment that says, no, governments or corporations are the only people who can bear arms. Uh, that's not the, you know, that's not a, a right way to think about freedom. Freedom rests with the individual, and organizations can help that individual exercise that freedom. The freedom has to rest with individual people. Right. And, and I guess the whole point of running it through individual people is so that some of these benefits of immigration are going to accrue to regular Americans, which they just don't, for the most part, under, uh, under the system. In fact, they threaten. And, and, and not just the economic benefits, but also the interactions with the migrants. Right. You know, one reason why I think people in wealthy cities uh, are quite supportive of migration in many places. People in other places aren't. Is that people in you know wealthy cosmopolitan cities? They see all the benefit of the diversity, the benefit of the food, the benefit of uh, the way in which people learn things from each other. And it's actually people in places that don't have that many migrants or haven't had them for very long that tend to be more hostile to right. migration right. because they don't have those experiences. Yeah. So so essentially, I I kind of envision a system where middleman organizations would be set up to try to facilitate this matching and so forth. But uh, an average American who would sponsor someone, the reason why there's this requirement that they be close to the to the actual the immigrant they're sponsoring would be to kind of make this sort of cultural bond and get them to sort of uh, appreciate diversity and that sort of thing. Absolutely. All right. Um, I, I want to move on because there are so many other policies that you talk about as well. And one uh, has to do with investing. Um, you know, uh, not too long ago, my, my wife and I, like a lot of Americans, uh, went to one of those, you know, huge uh, low fee Vanguard index funds and put a bunch of money in there. Well, not a bunch, but, you know, we're, we're professors. But what we had to kind of supplement our, our uh, university's plan. And, you know, for us, these big institutional investors, I think, have been a really positive thing. And, and certainly there are a lot of folks who agree with that. But you actually argue that they're kind of, a, in, in an interesting way, a new sort of monopolist. I, I was kind of hoping you could explain what you mean by that. Well, it's interesting that you say, like a lot of Americans, I think one thing that is really important to keep in mind and is easy for people maybe like us who have actually a reasonable amount of means to forget is that only about 30% of American own, Americans own any equities, even through any sort of pension fund or anything like that. Um, and beyond that, um, about half a percent of the population controls more than 50% of the equities in the stock market. So it's, um, it's really not the case that this is a widespread phenomenon. It's actually almost all of that wealth is held by a very small number of people. And the index funds that you're talking about, these large institutional investors, because that money is held by such few people, they represent the interest of that small number of people and the interest of that small number of people in seeing uh, as much of money as possible go into the stock market, the stock market raised in value, 
and not necessarily money being paid out in wages to people or in lower prices that consumers face. So if they could get their way, if that was their, you know, if they could have their druthers over the economy, those institutions would clearly want to see higher prices, lower wages, and a political system that benefits uh, people who own wealth. So then the question is, do they have the ability to do that? You know, they clearly have an incentive. There's no question about that. Do they have the ability? And what we point out is that about a quarter of the corporate economy is now owned by really just, you know, three or four or five of these large institutional investors, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, Fidelity, et cetera. And these four or five investors are not just, you know, owners of 25%. They are the top four or five investors for almost all of these companies. And it's not just, you know, American Airlines that they own. They own United and Delta. It's not just CBS that they own. It's, it's all you know, Walgreens and Rite Aid and so forth. And um, because they're the largest investors, because they have this interest in seeing just all companies prosper, even if it's at the expense of consumers and workers, um, they have the ability to control these companies. They have the incentive to reduce competition. And uh, there's really never been such a coherent, large coordination of wealth with so much power over the corporate economy um, as, as we're seeing with these institutional investors. Right. Well, I, you know, I think some people would say, well, if you look at how well, the percentage of these companies that they own, does it really make a difference if, say, you know, Vanguard owns 4% of, of a company? What sort of, what sort of leverage does that really translate into? Well, so the question is, who else is controlling these companies if not them? Uh, you could say, well, there are bigger investors in these companies. Well, there are no bigger investors than these guys, right? Um, the, the, you know, the truth is the corporate economy is very diffuse in its ownership. So control is going to end up resting with whoever has the most concentrated ownership, and that's precisely what these companies have. And they have common interests. They all have an interest in seeing these companies uh, collude. It's not like some of them own one company and some of them own another. That's actually what we advocate being the case. But in fact, they all own uh, all of these companies and they all have a common interest in seeing competition reduced. And companies do things like, quote, cost cutting, unquote, which is, is a way really to reduce wages by laying off workers. Right. Well, can, can you talk a little bit more about what your proposed solution is and, and why you think it would work? So it's actually a very simple solution. It basically just says that these companies have to own um, in a more concentrated way within a, in any given industry. So they're not allowed to own a bit of American, a bit of United, and a bit of Delta. They have to choose one of those companies and own a block of those shares, or they have to own uh, a very small fraction. So they either have to stay small, or if they're going to get larger, they can't get larger by just buying up all of the different companies. They need to instead focus on one so that they'll have an incentive to push that company to compete and earn as much as they can, even if that's at the expense of uh, its competitors. You know, and to me, this actually seems, at least from a sort of legislative regulatory standpoint, the easiest or the most straightforward maybe change to implement, which is not to say that there wouldn't be massive uh, political uh, opposition to it, but it seems almost, I, I, I hesitate to say it, but almost kind of straightforward. 
Well, you know, the truth is, is it's really funny because uh, almost everyone that I talk to about this idea who isn't like a representative of one of these, you know, large investors right. yeah. or someone who has a huge amount of money, says, ah, it's, it's not a big deal. I mean, who knows exactly how much good it would do, but I don't really see any argument against it. It wouldn't really reduce the ability of these guys to operate, et cetera. Um, and the people who represent these companies say, it would destroy the <laughs> financial sector and yeah. blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I think fundamentally the only thing standing in the way of this proposal is just awareness by the public of it. Right. Um, because I think if people were aware of it and, you know, rallied for it, I think it would be very hard for the industry to fight back against it. I think they only are able to stop this from happening because they ha have all of this secret influence on policy and the public isn't aware about the issue. And, you know, you hear all these Occupy Wall Street people protesting, you know, and, and it's never clear what they support, right? Yeah. This is something very concrete that they should be supporting. Um, and that if it came to the public awareness, I think it would be very hard to stop it from going through. Yeah. Well, you know, it seems to me that that's an issue with all monopolists is that uh, oftentimes a big problem is people don't re recognize that they are, in fact, monopolists and, and the damage that. That, that holding of that monopoly is doing to the, the broader economy and to, and to their well-being. Absolutely. And this is a particularly sort of severe and systematic one that we really think it's important that the public become aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now the final big issue you take on is this really massive amount of unpaid labor that, that well, I do and everyone, well, so many of us do every single day on social media and any other kind of data gathering platform. Um, and uh, you, you, make, you make this interesting point. You say, you know, that we have what we, what we call smart devices and assistants, but they're not really that smart. Um, uh, and you argue that if we paid, if, sorry, by paying people, companies, you know, like Amazon, Facebook, Google, they could potentially make their services a lot better, a lot quicker, but they don't. I mean, there are some isolated instances, but they don't really do that so much. Why don't they? Well, um, I think that they rely a huge amount on us not being aware of how valuable the contributions we're making are mm -hmm. and effectively turning us into sort of slaves to our own data. And if you don't think that that's part of their attention, I really recommend that uh, listeners look up a video called The Selfish Ledger that was put out by Google. And in this video, what Google describes is, you might be aware of the idea of the selfish gene. It's the notion that evolution really occurs on the basis of genes and that the animals aren't really evolving. It's their genes that are evolving, and the animals are just sort of carriers for that gene. And in this video, uh, Google imagines that that's the way Google should treat us in relationship to our data, that really Google's client is our data and that uh, we are just carriers of that data. And so it suggests that, um, you know, for example, if Google wants to know your weight, and it doesn't currently know your weight, rather than asking you for your weight, what it should do is use everything it knows about your preferences to design the perfect scale that you would want to buy, embed a Google tracker in it unbeknownst to you, and then uh, put that on Amazon somewhere so that you really want to buy it. So. That's the sort of like sneaky approach that so much of the digital economy is relying on, trying to deliberately not make you aware of the value that you are adding. 
and and you realize how inefficient that is. I mean, it's like it could just ask you for that and pay you something to know your weight. If it wanted to, it's so wasteful as an approach to leave the people who are actually producing that value out of the loop. But they do it to keep you unaware so that they never have to pay you for anything. Right. So the deal is essentially you give them all this information, whether you know it or not, and in return, you get to use their service. And we think that's a good deal, but we really don't appreciate how much value we're giving them in exchange for what they're giving us. At one point, don't you call it, uh, I think you refer to it as a sort of a techno-feudalism, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, under the feudal system, what would happen is that all the value of the things that you produce would be taken by the Lord, and in exchange, the Lord would let you cut down some wood from the forest or, you know, hunt some uh, animals on his park or something like that. And you would never know the role you were playing in the productive process. And I think we moved away from feudal systems because they were incredibly inefficient. They left out of the process of production that people were actually creating most of the value. And uh, that's really a terrible way to run an economy. But that's the situation we've got ourselves into under the you know tutelage of the lords of the digital era. Yeah. Now, that, what about the value of, say, any individual contribution? I mean, you know, how much is it worth really to Facebook or Google to say, know my weight or something like that? I mean, I'm sure that's an objection that you hear. And so how do we, how do we put a value on that? Well, in the example that we talked about, uh, the that um, uh, scale that Google was selling you, it was going to sell it to you for $46. That's not nothing. Uh, so th- that's some value there. I mean, I think right now probably the value in our current economy is, you know, only several hundred dollars or something like that. But the truth is that in this world, a lot of things would change. A lot of the value that's currently not being booked at all would, would come onto the book because probably... Um, you know, the, they would start charging for these services, and on the other hand, paying people for their contributions to them. So rather than all this value just being sort of hidden and obscured, it would become much more explicit, and that would generate much more revenue that would then eventually be distributed uh, to the people who were creating it. And on the other hand, as AI grows, you know, it's quite plausible, I think, that AI will account for about 10% of the economy in a few years. Right now, the um, uh, share of the money being made in AI that's going out to the people who are producing it, to the actual creators and workers, is only about 5 to 15%, depending on which company you look at. Um, and that's far below what it is in the rest of the economy, where it's 60 or 70%. If we uh, move towards the data as labor world, as we're advocating, uh, that hopefully would be much higher, like 60 or 70%. And that move, you know, spread over 10% of the economy, would constitute about uh, $20,000 for a family of four. So that, that could add up quite a lot of money. So, so basically, it sounds like you're saying that the, uh, the reason why so many of these tech companies are, are, are worth so much is that they get just this massive amount of nearly free labor that uh, companies in the rest of the economy simply, they don't have that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I, can you talk a little bit about how you think our relationship with these services might change, even if, you know, we're not talking about big payments, even, you know, with the system of, say, micropayments for our information. How do you think that would affect how we think of these companies and our, you know, how we interact with them? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the relationship people used to have to General Motors 
is very different than the relationship that people have to Google. Yeah. People, when they bought a General Motors car, they said, look, I, you can think of the, you know, the uh, uh, auto worker who probably built that. It maybe has a union stamp on it. Um, you know, you take pride in the fact that maybe it's not you who made that car, but you probably know someone who knows someone who made that car, right? And that's not how most people feel about Google or Apple or, you know, uh, Facebook. They basically say all those things, those are being created by some geek in Silicon Valley. And I have no connection to that. I'm just sort of a subject of that whole process. I'm not actually, you know, active. I'm not creating that value and no one like me is creating that value. It's sort of, it, it, it's some external force that's working on me and I'm just consuming it. I feel like I'm totally uh, just passive. And I think that would really change in this system. You would really feel like this is something to which we're all contributing and, and you would take pride in the contributions you'd make. Not only would you get a payment, but you'd be able to look up, you know, a list of all the ways in which you powered uh, these high-tech systems. And you would no longer feel like it was some just Frankenstein artificial intelligence coming to, you know, uh, wow you. You would feel like, no, this is just sort of a mashup of all the contributions that I and people like me have made to the system. And, and it would be a source of pride. Right. Well, you know, I'm, it occurs to me that one thing I see just kind of shot through all of your proposals is they all seem to involve in one way or another empowering regular regular Americans uh, and, you know, in a way in an economy that seems to be much more going in the opposite way. And that's something I think that both the left and the right seem to agree is, is a good thing. Yeah, I think that they, the left and the right both talk about that, but their solutions don't right. really lend themselves to it. Yeah. You know, Donald Trump, for example, talks all the time about, you know, speaking for us. But in reality, his, his instincts are authoritarian. He wants to, you know, have people maybe show up at the ballot box and vote for him or show up at a rally and scream about him. But he's not actually trying to give people back their power. He's, he actually is concentrating that in the hands whether it's immigration and customs enforcement, whether it's the hands of the very wealthy people who he's given so much, uh, you know, support through his tax policies, et cetera. And, and on the left, well, you know, there's a lot of groundswell for Bernie Sanders. The solutions Bernie Sanders actually wants to put into place are to put government bureaucrats in charge of so much of the economy, right? Rather than to empower ordinary people to, to, to make their way. And so what we want is to actually not go out there and rally and scream and so forth. And, you know, these are ideas that are maybe they're a bit more cerebral, maybe they're a little bit more abstract. But it's those sorts of abstract principles, sorts of principles that the founders spent, uh, you know, so long thinking about in Philadelphia. Those are the types of uh, uh, principles that actually have the possibility to genuinely give power to a broad part of the public. Right. And, and I want to, I'm hoping we could end on uh, sort of another up note, uh, you know, whenever I, whenever I teach and I talk to students about policy proposals that I think are really great, and, and I said, uh, you know, I think Radical Markets is full of proposals I would love to see implemented, uh, we, we run into this kind of brick wall. Uh, you know, we talk about these ways to improve the system, but then it turns out that, well, the current system benefits the people in power, and they're not, for that reason, not very interested in changing it. Um, 
So I was wondering if maybe you could offer some hope to uh, to listeners, my students, you know, who, a lot of the people who feel like who would come away from reading Radical Markets and say, yes, but is this really, could this really happen in our world? Well, I think that, you know, what makes real change is a combination of ideas and a social movement that they help to spur. And so I'm now devoting my time, you know, I, I, I still I still write some, I still come up with ideas and so forth, I think it's important. But I also um, am spending a lot of time with artists, a lot of time with social activists, a lot of time with government, with entrepreneurs who are testing things out. And it's through getting out ideas for all these different forms and having all those different groups of people collaborate with each other and be in conversation with each other and not be technocrats isolated in the academy or artists with no guidance from abstract ideas or entrepreneurs who are just uh, sort of splitting around and don't really have any uh, basis for what they're doing. It's by all those different segments of society coming together that we get true uh, uh, transformative social change. And, and that's what we're trying to do with, with the radical market movement. Well, I, I like I said, I, I think there are so many great ideas in there, and I wish you the best of, of luck with it, because I think it would make for a, a better, more inclusive uh, society, and so I'm all on board for that. So with well, that, that's wonderful, uh, Michael. Yeah. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I, I, I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.